Open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. Welcome to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Today, host Dr. Gary Wirtz talks with Drs. Ashley Preset and John Hovinessian about how physicians can keep their minds and bodies in shape for performing surgery. Dr. Preset is a cornea and cataract specialist and is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center. Today, she discusses ergonomics and how surgeons can improve their positioning to avoid injury. Later, we hear from Dr. Hovinessian, who practices at Harvard Eye Associates in Southern California and is on faculty at the UCLA Jules Stein Eye Institute. He weighs in on preparing for surgery in the context of being an athlete and the types of physical and mental habits that make a great surgeon. Coming up on Off the Grid. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net. Welcome to another uh, very special edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and today I have a good friend with me, Dr. Ashley Brissett. Ashley is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at Weill Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian Hospital, and she is a cornea and cataract specialist. And beyond that, she is a good friend to me and I think everyone in ophthalmology. And Ashley, I just want to thank you so much for taking a little bit of time to talk to me today about a, a topic I think we're both passionate about, and that's keeping our bodies and minds ready for surgery and avoiding injury. So um, tell me a little bit about your practice and then maybe we'll get a little bit into uh, more the meat of the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's so fun to be a part of this. And I know everybody refers to you as the pod father of ophthalmology. So it's awesome for me to get to be a part of this finally. So um, yeah, so, you know, ergonomics, it kind of started for me as a little bit selfish, to be honest, because as I was a resident and I was learning how to operate, I found that at the end of an OR day, you know, my neck would be sore. I was having this like funny wrist pain as I was learning how to do FACO. Uh, and so it kind of started out where I was thinking, you know, we train for so long to be able to provide this service for our patients that it would really be a shame if our work is limited then by the very profession that we train to do. Um, and so that's kind of how I started to get interested in this. And then the more that I talked about it with other surgeons, I found that a lot of people have discomfort after a long day in clinic or the OR. And a lot of it just really has to do with our positioning at the operating microscope and just the nature of our professions. Well, I think I think something that we do, and, and it's probably a maladaptive, I don't know, I think I think what we do is is perhaps we just try to to go as as quickly as we can. Whatever position a patient is in, we try to adapt to their position, and and we sort of put ourselves last um, when it comes to ergonomics because we think, well, you know, the patient ha- may have a weird 
You know, they may have kyphosis and they may, they may have a weird uh, neck situation or they may have a large body habitus and you're sort of operating in an awkward position. Why do we do that? Do you think it just comes from residency when we're just, we're just sort of made to work hard and not think about longevity? We're thinking about just getting the task done or why, why don't we spend more time thinking about this? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons. I think first and foremost, you know, the nature of our professions and why we all go into this is that we want to be able to help people. And so I found myself, even when I see patients, if I'm positioning them at this little amp, so I can examine them, I used to say, is this an okay position for you? Is this height okay? Uh, because I want to make it a pleasant experience for them and they're trusting me to examine them and to offer my opinion. Um, but then, so I think that plays in part to it. And then the second thing, I think we're just not really properly trained how to position. So, you know, we get so much training in ophthalmology, but to have the formal training to really learn how to optimize our work environments is something that we're lacking. And that's what kind of started me down this path of doing some research in this area and ways that we can help our residents and fellows. And then even, you know, people well into their careers that might be experiencing some discomfort. How can we learn to better, you know, create our environments so that it's healthy, not only for our patients, but also for ourselves. So I have a friend, uh, Nathan Steinley, shout out. Uh, Nathan is a retina specialist in Santa Barbara and a dear friend. He actually was one year behind me in training and we were pretty much best friends throughout residency. His wife is a dental hygienist. And what's really interesting is for dental hygienists, they have they have entire courses on the proper way to hold instruments and ergonomics. And I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense because they're dealing with their hands and they're performing, you know, tasks all day long. Why don't we have that in ophthalmology or in surgical training in general? Yeah, I completely agree with you. And so what we did is I did some research at my alma mater in Canada, a place called Queen's University that I started when I did my master's degree and then continued it to where I work currently at Wild Cornell in New York. And what we did is we created an online ergonomics module for really residents and fellows, but anyone can access it. It should be available in the next few months online where people can actually go into a simulated scenario in the operating room or in the clinic and learn how to properly position. And it's a really kind of interactive module for that education because we just found in looking at the curriculum across the country that that's really lacking. And I think unless you seek it out, that you're probably missing that. And I think if you're seeking it out, it's because you're already experiencing pain or discomfort. Um, so we want to try and get to the point where that's not happening. And our work environments, I mean, there's you know, specific risk factors that I think are found in ophthalmology. And when we were looking at this in the research, we found that there were really three main things, which is pretty similar, actually, I think, to a lot of microscope bound physicians, dental hygienists, laparoscopic surgeons, etc. Um, and so, you know, specific for ophthalmology, we found that one, sometimes it's just awkward positioning, as we've discussed, you know, due to patient's body habitus or just the equipment that we're using, it can be kind of awkward. And then, as you mentioned before, the repetition of task. I mean, especially if we're doing something like cataract surgery, we're doing multiple surgeries in a row in the same position. That repetition, it's almost like a repetitive strain injury. And then lastly, what we refer to as this forced manipulation. So often we grip the instruments really tightly. We're working in very small spaces, you know, under very stressful conditions. And so I think all those three risk factors are really what kind of plays into this being a profession where it's prone to developing um, discomfort. In the studies that we looked at, we found that in a range of studies, about 50 to 80% of ophthalmologists had back or neck or wrist discomfort in their profession. And what was really surprising is we found that that um, 9% of surgeons at some point had to quit operating due to chronic discomfort. And so again, I just think we train for so long to be able to provide this service and to be able to work that we want it to prevent it to get to that point where you're not able to operate anymore. 
Ashley, I'm, I'm, I'm asking this selfishly. Um, this is part of the reason I love this podcast is because I get to ask everyone the questions that I want. I'm a bigger guy and you know, I'm 6'2", probably look more like an orthopod than a guy who should be doing uh, eye surgery. You know, for me, you know, I'm trying to get my, my legs under the table, for example, and I operate temporally, which I think most of us, um, sort of the newer generation of surgeons operate temporally. But it can be a real struggle for me to get my legs under the table and also have the oculars at the appropriate height so everything's in focus. And, uh, you know, I've, I've sort of figured out some tips and tricks to do that. But, you know, for a long time, I would I might end a case with my right leg. Um, if I'm operating on a, a right eye, you know, sitting on the right side, my right leg will be sort of pinned up underneath the uh, bed. And I've it's not, it wouldn't be infrequent that my leg would be either numb or uh, starting to feel a little almost like paresthesia at the end of the case, just because I'm sort of trying to wedge myself uh, into this situation. And uh, I think also there, there's something that needs to be done to create sort of the surgical cockpit so that we can actually align the bed height and the chair and have the right, right um, I guess, size or, or um, I guess space underneath the bed that allows us to get into a, a comfortable situation, almost like a luxury car. But do you find that surgeons on both ends of the size spectrum have different challenges? Because I I'm, I find that for myself. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We see that a lot as well, especially in trainees, where you might have you know two surgeons of completely different body habitus that are switching between the primary microscope, and then that can be really challenging because if you're operating with someone and assisting them and going back and forth, that size disparity can pose some challenges, and you don't want to slow down the case by repositioning everything all of the time. So I definitely have heard that before. And even myself, sometimes just the way that the bed is set up or the patient's body habit is you're really contorting yourself into different positions to make it so that, you know, the eye is at a plain field so that you can operate. So I've definitely been there myself and I've, and I've heard this a lot. I think one thing that I usually recommend to people is to consider having an ergonomics assessment of the workplace or just get somebody to take photos of you because sometimes you might not even know that you're in an awkward position because we're so focused on the task at hand. And then if you look at those photos afterwards or even just kind of a quick video of the way that you're positioned, you might see places in the environment where you can make adjustments. And I think it's really important to just take the you know one minute or less that it would take at the beginning of each case to set it up appropriately for yourself rather than just trying to rush into the next case because I think longevity-wise, you're body will thank you. And, and not even in terms of years of your career, but even towards the end of the day. And then I think that plays a lot into because this is a repetitive injury that you really need to be performing regular exercise, stretching, resistance training, especially after these long OR days or even a long day in the clinic. And I know, Gary, that you're really into exercise as well. And so I just think that that's something that also needs to be instilled uh, into everybody that you know, we have to maintain ourselves as, as healthy individuals, you know, mind, body, everything, so that we can provide that service back to our patients. Um, I will say one more thing about the positioning is that I'm excited about some of these newer technologies that are coming out. So some of the, you know, heads up technology or the 3D projection, where you might not be leaning forward, looking into a microscope, but instead maybe leaning back in the chair a little bit more. I think that's kind of exciting from an ergonomics perspective too. So I, I'm interested to see where that goes in terms of new technology. 
Well, that's that's you read my mind in terms of where I was going because not only uh, do we need to try and do a better job of positioning ourselves and being mindful of our ergonomics, but at some level we are we're limited by the technology uh, that that we have at our disposal, and so. Um, like I said before, sometimes we're we're sort of having to wedge ourselves uh, into the situation. But these newer technologies uh, that I think most of the companies now are coming out with, I know um, um, True Vision has a product. Zeiss just came out with a digital microscope with a similar uh, type of, of feel. Um, and I think some others are, are potentially working on on similar technologies. What I like about that is you have a new variable. So you you may still have to worry about your legs under the bed and those sorts of things, but now you're free to basically put your head and, and lean back and sit where you want. Um, and I just, I, you think about buying a new microscope as, as sort of, a, all right, how much is this going to cost me? But you might kind of want to think about it in a different way of like how, if I get the right microscope or the right platform, how much is this going to allow me to maybe add cases to the end of the day when before I needed to limit the amount or uh, years to my productive life? I think that's an investment question that's very different than a cost question that we've typically had, don't you think? I think so too. And I think people are becoming more cognizant of that as well. Well, you know, rather than thinking about a bottom line, it's thinking about our well-being as, as the surgeon. So I'm really excited to see where industry continues to grow. And I think as we continue to ask those questions and build and work with industry, I, I just think it is going to be for the better of everybody. So I'm really excited about those new technologies. I know we have Ingenuity at Cornell, um, and I've used it for some of my anterior segment cases. Our retina surgeons were using it for a really long time. Um, and they were just saying incredible things about it. So we've just started to employ it for anterior segment. And I've really seen a difference in terms of positioning, especially for longer, say, corneal or conjunctival procedures. And then also in terms of teaching and just being exactly as you said, if, you know, you're as a, you know, a taller um, male operating with somebody who's maybe of a different body habitus, being able to switch back and forth between, you know, the primary surgeon and the assistant has been really easy, even if they're of two different sizes. So again, I just think it's going to be great to see where we grow with this in industry. Let's talk a little bit about something you mentioned earlier, which is exercise, stretching, um, actually um, taking care of your body. Um, I, I mentioned this earlier article in CRST a few months ago about, I think the title is uh, Cardio and Cataract Surgery, which is, which is kind of catchy. But really, the, the point of it was, you know, four or five years ago, I started having lower back pain and neck pain, and I wasn't doing near the volume I'm doing now. Um, but it was, it was for all the reasons we said, it, it was me basically just trying to, um, you know, work my way through the day as fast as I can and not trying to take care of myself until I, I ran into a little bit of a problem. It wasn't severe, but I, I could tell it was coming. And I actually started, um, doing more whole body exercises. So, um, slowly, but surely working into squats and deadlifts, uh, with moderate weight, not crazy weight. And trying to make sure the form is really, really good um, because sometimes, you know, if you're not careful, you can injure yourself for those kind of things. But I have actually found that um, strength training and also yoga um, are two things that, um, and yoga, I think is kind of obvious thing. Most people would say that makes sense, but I've really found that strength training those muscles to actually be stronger so that I can sit up straight and my, my postural muscles are better. It's helped me so much. My, I have zero neck and back pain. Uh, since I've been doing this, and I'm, I, I really am, am a big fan of it. What have, what have you found any of that in your research to be helpful? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we really underestimate the strength that is required to maintain a static position. I mean, if you think about you know, holding your shoulders up for, you know, five hours, which if you think the cumulative time, if an entire OR day might be that you're in that position, you need an incredible amount of strength for that. So I completely agree with you that the, not only the cardiovascular training just for total body health, but the strength training and the stretching is such an important component of, of limiting any kind of strain or discomfort that you might get just as the nature of this profession is. So I completely agree with what you're saying. And I found that in myself as well. And I try to encourage that in our trainees at Cornell. I mean, I know it can feel so overwhelming sometimes when you have a busy practice and other things going on in life to incorporate exercise, but, you know, not just for the kind of health reasons that we all know we should be exercising already. But I think to also think about it in terms of preventing injury in the future is incredibly important. So I completely agree with you. I have a number of exercises that I, you know, kind of give out to our trainees and that will be included in that online module about ergonomics that I'm happy to share with you and and the people listening as well that were developed by a physiotherapist. So give me a rundown of what um, some of those are, if you don't mind. Yeah, so a couple of them. So there's one called um, the broomstick stretch, which is if you have like a broomstick or you can do it with like an exercise band or even just if, you know, anything like that, what you want to do is like rotate it from right in front of you to overhead to behind your back and just to really be releasing a lot of that forward kind of positioning that we get into at the microscope as we're operating to kind of um, stretch in more of a backward position to counter all that forward positioning. Um, There's some scapular retraction exercises that you can do as well to strengthen those back muscles exactly as you were describing where the strength training comes into play. Um, And so other stretches like that that really counter those forward positioning I think can be beneficial. What about stress? Uh, That's something I think we don't talk a lot about uh, because I think we all try to pretend that we we don't encounter stress and stress is something for other people. But I'll give you a little background. Uh, My my partner had an injury and uh, was was out of commission for for a little while and uh, went from being a a busy surgeon to being kind of like a a super busy surgeon with, with a double workload. And, you know, I was really feeling the stress and, and without, you know, you know, exercise is a great stress relief. So I kind of use that also, but I think when I walk into the operating room, I kind of feel like I need to be almost like a race car driver or, or someone who's ready, you know, just to perform. And that means not just is, is my body ready, but it's, have I had enough sleep last night? Am I hydrated? Um, have I, you know, meditated or prayed or gotten myself into the proper mental space to be able to, to accomplish the task in front of me. Do you have anything um, in your world where that helps you, you know, get in the right mindset to be a, the best version of yourself when you sit down to operate? Yeah, I love that you've brought this up. I think this is something that sometimes people are afraid to talk about, but our jobs are stressful and not just in terms of the time commitment, but also in terms of the almost emotional work that's required of it as well. I don't, I don't know if you kind of agree with that, but yes, definitely. Yeah. Like I'm a very empathetic person and I take a lot of um, what my patients tell me and what I discuss with them, whether it's about their personal lives or their families or things that they're going through with their health. And I take that home. I mean, I always say, I like think about my patients as I'd like, you know, get home. And I think about things they told me about their family members, maybe who are ill And I think that we kind of underestimate how much that plays into our emotional states as well. 
you know, we spend so much time at work and so much time taking care of other people that we need to also recharge ourselves. So I love that you brought this up. I agree with you. I think the importance of mental health is important. I really, you know, think that talking with whether it's friends, a therapist um, can be extremely helpful for managing some of those emotions. I mean, our, our jobs are difficult and what we see day to day, a lot of people don't necessarily deal with. And so I think it's nice having an outlet for being able to talk about that, either with people who understand or, or someone that can help guide you through that. I think meditation can be really important as well. And, and like you said, prayer too. Um, it's just having that sense of community that you know that you have an, have an outlet for. Um, so I think that just helps day to day for everything. I think as well for the operating room, I specifically have a few like weird things that I do ritualistically that I think um, kind of help. Like OCD, like OCD. Almost, yeah. Like I don't drink coffee the days that I operate. So that's like my thing. Um, I So I don't do that. I like to have like music playing in the background. I, you know, so I have a few little things that I like to set up the morning of. I get there early to make sure that the environment is good, that I've, you know, said hello to the nurses. I double check my lenses for the day. So I just have kind of a few ritualistic things that really kind of help me and mean, set the stage for, for that being a good day. Um, but other than that, I completely agree with you that I think talking and, you know, meditation, seeing friends, you know, therapy, prayer, whatever you want to do is completely necessary because we've talked a lot already in this podcast about, you know, the the body component of it so that you're healthy so that you can provide the service, but you also need the health of mind and the peace of mind to be a good caregiver as well. So I think it's important. You know, you mentioned about music and um, I, I almost like cannot operate without music. I am the same way. I wouldn't be able to tell you what song was just playing as I was operating, but I just need that kind of background. That's so funny. I, so a couple of uh, I'll just share my playlists that I, I that are kind of my go to playlists. So it depends on the the, the mood I'm in, but um, Pandora has a few great playlists. One is or, or radio stations. One is called Laid Back Beach Music. Oh, I love that. And it's sort of a, a weird a weird mix of like Bob Marley and Zach Brown Band and Jack Johnson. That's really good. Um, there's a great one that's basically of the decades '60s, '70s, and '80s. And so my patient. My cataract patient population usually was somewhere in their youth during that time frame. And so those those songs the patients sort of relate to and like. And also uh, on Pandora, the Eagles uh, radio is fantastic. And I, that's a decade and in, in, in genre of music I, I kind of missed. I was a little bit beat, uh, past that when I was growing up. But I've really, really loved the Eagles and sort of the music that the Eagles, um, sort of that genre of, of music. It's relaxing without putting you to sleep. And, uh, and, and I'll also mention if you're getting a little sleep in the OR, um, and, uh, you know, you may disagree, but the Millie Vanilli playlist, uh, is actually amazing because it hits that segment from like the late eighties to early nineties that is sort of like a microcosm of, of awesome pop music. And I don't care who sang it, but I, I, I like to listen to it. You're sticking by your word. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. I go back and forth because sometimes I play what I want to hear, but necessarily what I want to hear isn't whatever. And in the OR wants to hear, right. I play a lot of this kind of like, 
I have this one on Apple Music called Chill Mix, a lot of this kind of like synth pop progressive stuff um, of my millennial generation, I guess you could call it. And I have a playlist called Music to Operate To, which has a bunch of music like that. But sometimes the nurses want to hear certain things. And so it's a funny, Blake Williamson, who I know is a good friend of yours as well, once told me that he just kind of wants to keep his team happy. So whatever his team wants to hear, he'll like play for them, um, whether it's country or pop or anything. Um, And so I'm pretty open to that as well. But I, I agree with you. Sometimes just having that background music, it just you know, kind of uh, makes the day go so smoothly. So I love to play music more as well. It does. And, and, and one other thing I'm going to mention in this, I don't know how, how you feel about this, but um, a habit I got into um, a few years ago was actually walking around it, when I'm done with surgery at the end of every day, I go up to every employee in my surgery center and I just thank them for helping me. Mm-hmm. Um, I go up to the front desk. I go to the guys who are mopping the floors, Tony and Brian. I talk to the techs, the nurses, everyone. And I just thank them. And, you know, I don't know. I don't. I, it kind of gets routine perhaps, but it's an exercise in gratitude that I feel like when I leave, I know that um, every person that helped me to de- that day, um, I was able to tell them thank you. And it allows me sort of like to mentally shift gears of like, okay, this task has been completed. I've, I've, I've shown everyone appreciation and now I'm going to sort of shift gears into the next thing. Yeah, I really love that. That's something that I think I'm going to take away even just from our discussion today. I think that's so important, that gratitude for the team and, and for, you know, having a shared goal, because at the end of the day, it's all about the patient and their experience. And you, I'm always, you know, blown away when they say to me, even from the check-in person to, you know, getting in the cab at the end of the day, I, it was just a great experience. And all of those people play a role in that, not necessarily just, just us. So I, I love what you just said. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, Ashley, I can't wait to hear more about this online ergonomics module. Uh, when this comes out, will you come back potentially and give us a little bit of an update, even if it's a quick one? Because I'd love to share this with with the masses. Yeah, I'm so excited for this. This has been a work in progress for a really long time. Um, and so it's just kind of a you know, something that I'm so excited to finally have out there. And I think to continue this discussion, because I know we have a shared interest in not just ergonomics, but exercise and health and wellness. And I just love that that conversation is becoming more common in ophthalmology. So I thank you so much for for having the, um, you know, the space to talk about that. And so I really appreciate it. And I'm happy to come back anytime. Thanks, Ashley. Next, Drs. Wartz and Hovenessing dig into the concept of preserving the surgical athlete and the physical and mental toughness required to get into the right state of mind for surgery. Welcome to a, another segment of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Uh, today, I'm talking to my good friend, Dr. John Hovanesian, who, as most of us know, is in clinical practice at Harvard Eye Associates in Southern California and is on clinical faculty at UCLA Jules Stein Eye Institute. So, John, thanks so much for taking some time to discuss what I think is going to be a really, really important topic, which is sort of preserving the surgical athlete. Uh, it's, a, it's something that you wrote about that really resonated with me. And so thank you for coming and talking to us about that. My pleasure, Gary. Uh, so when you wrote uh, the article, which was actually in Ocular Surgery News, I think it was a month or so ago, not very long ago, um, 
I read this and and like I said, it really struck a chord with me because um, I've said for a while that I think that cataract surgery in particular um, is probably the closest thing we have in medicine to a sport or a performance art Um, because what we are doing is highly technical. It requires a high degree of skill and we're constantly trying to refine our technique and skill to come up with better outcomes, which would be analogous to winning or having a higher batting batting percentage. When you wrote this, what was going through your mind when you were sort of taking on this concept of of a surgical athlete or maybe even as surgery as an athletic event? Yeah, I first heard of the term surgical athlete from Stephen Dell, and uh, it resonated with me because it occurs to me that although we're sitting down when we do the surgery, uh, there really is an awful lot going on. And uh, not to say that other forms of surgery don't require uh, meticulous attention, but when we operate, we're using both hands, both feet, and both eyes, and of course our brain, most importantly, to, uh, to do a surgery that, is, that requires forces, you know, fluid forces that are not really intuitive. They're learned uh, skills. Uh, and it's a very unforgiving surgery as well. When bad things start to happen in cataract surgery, they can escalate into worse. And so it takes not only our, our physicality, but our mentality and our state of mind to perform the surgery, uh, this intense surgery uh, that has such implications for our patients. So in a way, we are playing a very high stakes game like an athlete. Well, and, and something I thought of previously is when we think about NASCAR or IndyCar racing, uh, those guys are and gals are considered athletes uh, be, because of the way they are their their bodies are performing and even though they're driving a car um, they're very much doing a lot of the same things that we are doing as surgeons so to the extent that I think that uh, race car drivers would be considered athletes and I think they are um, I would say that what we do um, mimics a lot of the same things that they're doing they're sort of pushing that razor's edge um, and, and we're doing the same thing yeah, it's a great analogy. And, and like eye surgery, it tends to be fairly unforgiving. When bad things start to happen, they can go, go very bad very fast. And, yes, and, uh, high, yeah. high stakes. Right. Yeah, one thing I've, I've said to some of the residents I, I interact with from time to time at UK where I'm on an associate faculty, is I say there's no limit to the amount the eye can punish you. You know, when, when, when I, you think that there's there's certain limitations to how bad a surgery can go, and, and it just doesn't seem that that's the case um, <laughs> from personal experience. Let's talk about preparing for surgery and preparing for our careers as surgeons, sort of in this context of being an athlete. Um, one of the, one of the things I really value when I watch sports, I love watching sports, especially college sports, UK basketball and football. I love watching. I love professional sports as well. Um, the, the players that I think are the best are the ones that are mentally tough, the ones that can shake off a bad shot, whether it's, whether it's in golf or basketball, um, and just get right back and, and just sort of forget that. What do you think is important as a surgeon psychologically? What's, what do you think makes a great surgeon from a, from a mental toughness standpoint? Uh, it, it's, um, it is the very same types of skills, isn't it? Uh, I think frequently of the advice uh, – of um, the head coach of Notre Dame, Lou Holtz, who is a famed coach for many decades, who used to say that in order to win, you have to pay attention to W-I-N or what's important now. And um, 
when you're performing a capsulotomy, it really doesn't matter how you plan to disassemble the nucleus of the lens. When you're doing IA, it doesn't matter, you know, what type of injector you're going to use. You need to focus on what's important now. And he always taught, so did John Wooden at UCLA, that, um, that attitude and effort are what determine your success. There are many things you cannot control, but you can control everything that's within your control and stack the odds in your favor when you're your mental approach is set up right. Well, and that, that sort of reminds me of the serenity prayer, which I, I feel like if there's something in my life that I, I sort of orbit around, it's really this concept of trying to focus on the things I can control. And so the serenity prayer says, you know, Lord, give me the, the strength to change the things I can, the uh, serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think in surgery, what we have to do is we have to say, okay, here are the things that are under my control at this moment. I can't focus on maybe the mistake I made previously in this case or a, a few cases ago. I have to focus on right now. And I have to just focus on the few variables at my disposal to control uh, to sort of move the ball in the right direction. Well said. I agree completely. So before, before going into surgery um, and before prepare, preparing for a big day, what are the things that you that you do? I mean, for me personally, I'll kind of give you my my pregame. I think it's important that I'm well rested and that I get a good night's sleep before a big day of surgery, uh, because I know the next day I have to be ready to be as sharp for you know case number thirty five or whatever as I am for case number one. And if I'm staying up later watching you know the the, the late show or the night show, you know that's not going to be a good thing for me the next day. So for me, making sure that I have adequate rest before a big day of surgery is really key. I feel like that's sort of uh, paying dividends or putting a deposit in the bank for tomorrow. Uh, what, what are some things that you think are important? You know, sleep is hugely important. Uh, most of us, there are very few of us who, who can perform at our best on less than eight hours sleep. And of course, most of us do with less than that quite regularly because our schedules and all that we have to do just doesn't allow it. But um, the night before surgery, it's particularly important. And, uh, you know, I have friends who have young children who get up in the middle of the night and sometimes they'll sleep in a different bedroom so that their, you know, their, their spouse who takes care of the kids at night can, uh, can manage them or, you know, do whatever they need to. Uh, to to allow themselves to get rest because they're serving not themselves the next day. They're serving every single patient they treat. Um, I think how you eat is uh, matters uh, what you consume. I'm not a big fan of caffeine anytime and particularly not before surgery because although for some people we're all different, it helps us to focus better. Uh, for many of us, it may give us a little tremor or in my case, it just, you know, elevates my, um, let, let's say it, it lessens my sense of calm than uh, than if I if I if I drink caffeine. Um, I think stretching uh, is is tremendously helpful. Um, one of the biggest issues that surgeons run into is a physical one because you're not in the most physiologic position when you operate. In many cases, you got to stretch or lean or whatever. Um, having good core strength and good flexibility of your entire body makes a huge difference. So I'm a fan of yoga and even a couple minutes of yoga before you operate does wonderful things both for your body and your mind. Yeah, I think that that's, that's sort of like the pregame. You see athletes stretching, um, getting ready. 
Um, and even going through things mentally, you can see them taking shots like for, for, before a basketball game. You know, sometimes if I've got a tough case, particularly like if I'm doing some, a newer technique, like like a Yamani double needle fixation or something that I don't do every day. It's something that I might do once a month or once every couple months. Um, I will try to mentally rehearse the steps of those of those surgeries. And sometimes I, I have a whiteboard in my office and I'll even diagram it out because for me, sort of writing it out and seeing how, how the play looks helps me when I'm in surgery to remember each one of those important steps so I don't miss a step. Sure. Reviewing surgical video also helps, uh, you know, YouTube and other instructional videos can just give you uh, basically what it does. You may know the steps very well, but but reviewing them gives you a level of comfort uh, that, you know, you're not going to be wondering in the middle of the case. It, it doesn't need to be something you think about so much. It'll, it'll happen much more fluidly. Well, and another, another saying that I've heard is that under stress, we, we sort of revert to our level of our, of our training. We don't tend to perform our best uh, under stress. We tend to um, revert to our level of, of training. So to the extent that you've prepared and you've trained and you rehearse something, when the stress uh, occurs in a case, um, you're going to be much more likely to be successful, I believe. Yeah, that's exactly right. Tell me a little bit about your surgical day. Are there times, do you have scheduled breaks throughout your surgical day? I mean, per- personally, um, if I want to take a break, I can, but I, I hammer it pretty hard. And that that may be a, something that's not smart, but I try to start around 7.30. You know, we might t- we'll take about a 30-minute break for lunch, and then we'll we'll finish the, the rest of the cases. Um, do you think it's important to take maybe some micro breaks throughout the morning or throughout the day, just as a way to reset or to, um, you know, refocus yourself, take a drink of water, stretch a little bit. Are those things that maybe we don't do them? I don't know if you do or not, but would that be something that you think would be smart? You bet. And we all know ourselves and how we like to function. Um, personally, I like to maintain a pretty good pace when I'm in surgery. I, for me, it's a little bit like, um, you know, if you're, if you're, backpacking, uh, you know, they teach you take breaks frequently, but not for too long because you start to, uh, actually tense up, uh, and you you start to develop kind of an inflammatory response in your joints and your muscles. When you rest them for too long, your cardiovascular system slows down, has to work its way back up. And of course, this is a different kind of physiology. It's more mental, but for me, I work out of two operating rooms and move back and forth and for me, I get into a zone, you know, when I start operating and I can tell you that my cases later in the day uh, always go a little more fluidly than my first cases of the day because I haven't worked into that pattern. Uh, having said that, though, I have partners and lots of friends who do schedule breaks because that's what allows them to reset and do their best. So it's, I think, a little bit of knowing yourself and trying different things that that determines your best path. But know that... Um, more important than you, you know, do X number of cases and Y amount of time is that you do each case well. And uh, prioritizing those kind of breaks when you need to is helpful. For me, I take, you know, I breathe between cases. Um, I uh, uh, sometimes I'll say a little prayer and of, of thanks for, you know, getting myself to where I am in the day and that I hope things continue to go well. Uh, or the opposite. If I had a tough case to say, okay, you know, the next case is a new one and a new chance to do good for my patient. And um, doing that allows me to focus in the moment and uh, perform for me at my best. 
Yeah, I, I, I definitely resonate with, with, with all of that. Um, one thing you said about it is sort of staying on pace. And, and for me, you know, I'm probably a little OCD. I think, I think we all are to some degree when we get to becoming a, you know, functioning ophthalmologist. Um, but I almost look at, I, I had I operate out of two or three rooms, just kind of, kind of depending on the day. But I sort of have this mental pace that I feel like if I can stay on this pace, it's going to be good. It's going to get me through the day. And I sort of get into this state of flow where time almost stops. And I'm sort of in the, you said in the zone, which is kind of the same, same thing. And so when I'm, when I'm in the zone, personally, I really don't want to take a break because I'm feeling so good. Things are happening fluidly. They're happening, happening naturally. But if I get out of that zone, sometimes I'll just go to my office. I'll, I'll just... To, you know, take a you know nice long sip of water. I'll do some breathing. I'll say a prayer. I'll try to just refocus myself because I know that the next patient they deserve my absolute best. And if I'm not there mentally because of something that happened in the previous case, I think it's much better just to take a little break and refocus yourself than to just tr- sort of push through and uh, try to just catch up or or get back on time. Particularly after a tough case, I think it's important because. Uh, your catecholamines in your body are just surging, uh, whether you feel it or, uh, you know, whether you've been operating for 20 years or you're in your first year out, um, getting yourself back to a place where you're best means recognizing that and addressing it. Um, all of us know at some level how important the work we're doing is for our patient. And that's why we get those stress, you know, mediators flowing in our body. It's, it's natural. And yet we have to cope with that in a way that's going to serve the next patient well. Yeah, absolutely. What about reviewing film? You know, that's another thing that I think is really analogous. You know, we have um, sports teams who are reviewing film, looking at how they perform, looking uh, maybe at how other people perform. Um, how does that work into your uh, strategy for for peak performance? Yeah. First of all, filming your surgeries is, does not need to be either complicated or expensive. There are a number of video record, video capturing devices that will record video to a memory stick that cost under $100. Uh, and uh, one with, with, that we've used recently is actually made for, for gamers. It's a you know, video game thing that's meant to capture uh, the video. And um, my staff just presses one. It literally has one button and a memory stick you plug in, and it goes in line uh, with your your microscope's camera output if you have a if you have a camera. And so that allows me to capture every case every day. And um, they usually get deleted because most of them are uneventful. But it allows me to. I go through all of them to see if there was anything you know that's a pattern. And I found lots of ways that I was really not very efficient in completing surgery, maybe putting more fluid into the eye or more trauma to the eye than I needed to, that I've eliminated. And it's made me a, a, a better surgeon to review that. I, I wrote a blog almost 10 years ago on uh, Physician Teach Thyself was the title of it, or Doctor Teach Thyself. And it's all about just that subject and how much I've gained by doing it. So we we use a similar system. It sounds like the, the company that makes the, the device we use for recording is called, uh, I think it's Aver Media, A-V-E-R, M-E-D-I-A, and obviously no financial interest in that. But And then because we've got an older microscope, the, the highest level output actually is a super video output. And so there are a number of um, super video to HDMI conversion um, devices that may cost $50 or so on Amazon. So 
you're, you're exactly right. For under maybe $200, no matter what microscope you have, you can get the various devices necessary to uh, turn the signal into digital and then record it onto an external device like a memory stick or hard drive. Um, and, and I agree. I think that uh, not only is, is recording uh, helpful uh, to you, but you can t- be a teacher for others um, uh, if you have an interesting case. You bet. Those are the perfect kind of cases to re- review with re- uh, referring optometrists. They love to see surgical video, and uh, uh, and of course other physicians. If you do teaching like like you do and I do, um, it, it's it's very helpful to have. So let's let's talk about one last thing, and that's that's sort of the concept of coaching. Um, you know, we, I don't think we have this as much in ophthalmology. Uh, clearly, in sports, there's a defined role of a coach. Um, we are sort of expected to coach ourselves. We're sort of expected to be, um, you know, monitoring our own, you know, uh, performance. But but sometimes we're not the best arbiters of our own surgical skill. Um, there's a there's a there's an organization called Aces, or uh, they also have a, a side organization, uh, ABES, American Board of Eye Surgery, and the idea there was, I think, to submit videos. And you would be given some level of critique on your videos. Um, and I don't know if it's a pass-fail system. I'm, I've, I've been intermittently involved with that organization in the past. But I think the concept is really fantastic. The concept of we should be doing some level of peer review um, you know, to, our, to our friends and maybe anonymously perhaps um, so that we can get some feedback from other experts on ways we could improve or maybe areas that are you know, excellent. Um, I think some of that, that culture, I think, needs to be reinforced in ophthalmology. I think we do a pretty good job, but I think we could do better. We certainly need to check our egos if we want to be good surgeons because um, we all have something to learn. And at different stages of our career, it's different things. And um, I've also found that, uh, interestingly, some of the best coaches are actually not physicians. Um, The reps who uh, sell FACO equipment or make lens implants spend a huge amount of their time watching doctors do surgery. And some of them, uh, these are smart folks, and some of them have seen and heard of things that that we never have. Uh, And it's, I found just some great advice that has come from industry folks who visit my OR, asking them, hey, what are you seeing other people do? What can I do better? And very often they don't want to give you any feedback that's constructive because they don't want to offend you. But if you ask for it, and sometimes you need to ask for it repeatedly, they'll sometimes give you some real pearls that can be helpful to you. Uh, likewise, talking to your partners or fellow physicians, going to meetings and showing surgical video uh, and, and asking for input is enormously helpful. And I think most people in our profession are uh, really very interested in helping each other because they, they know we face similar challenges and we'll give you really valuable insights on how you can do better with your surgery. Yeah, no, I think that's so important, John. Um, I think, you know, like you said, checking our egos at the door is, uh, is vitally important. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. I think this is just a really interesting paradigm that we can look at our profession, um, maybe through a new lens, no pun intended. And, and again, I, to go back, I totally agree about the about the industry reps. I've gotten some of the best tips um, from industry just because um, they see so much. They're in, they're seeing so many different surgeons operate, and they they I sort of call them the honeybees 
of, of the OR because they cross-pollinate really good ideas between uh, different surgery centers. And I, I think they're fantastic, um, not only for what they do um, in industry, but the little pearls that pass along to us. So, um, John, thank you so much again for for coming on and sharing the, your insights. I always enjoy our conversations and, and look forward to seeing you again soon. Gary, you are a real innovator in our field and a real thinker. And um, covering this kind of topic, I think, is really important. And what you do with your podcast is is uh, very educational for me. I listen to it and to a lot of other folks. So thanks for including me. Although many physicians may be tempted to put their patient's comfort before their own, it is crucial that they take care of themselves first to ensure that they are in the best possible shape to do their jobs. Thank you to Drs. Brissett and Hovenessian for sharing their insights into maintaining optimal health. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Off the Grid. Until next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Alcon. For a full listing of podcasts for eye care professionals, go to itube.net forward slash podcasts. That's itube, E-Y-E-T-U-B-E dot net.